You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. My guest today, Michael Schmidt, is a best-selling author, investigative journalist, historian, and human rights rapporteur with more than 30 years' experience, having worked in 47 countries on six continents. He has six books published with translations in various languages in Brazil, Canada, the USA, Germany, and South Africa. His sixth book, Death Flight, Apartheid Secret Doctrine of Disappearance, which is published this year by Tafelberg, details for the first time ever the men and operations of Delta 40, an ultra-secret SADF unit which murdered hundreds of prisoners and dumped their bodies in the oceans from a light aircraft between 1979 and 1987. It has been hailed by Nati Biko, son of Steve Biko, as an extraordinary testament, a daring mission to salvage the ghosts of those who were thought to have been eternally dissolved by apartheid special forces. Michael, welcome to the show. Good morning and uh, hello to your listeners. Michael, well, that, that is quite the intro, and it, it's, it's quite a scary intro. You know, people have said about your book, like Kahiso Molope, it says, I hope everyone gets a chance to read Death Flights because we cannot afford uh, not to know the details of this part of our history. We cannot afford to look away from the lives we lost, but more importantly, we cannot afford to go on thinking that history can only be seen as black and white. Now, for me, the obvious question is, why did you write this book considering we've been through such a painful process? We, we went through the TRC. We seem to be at a point in our history where racial tensions are once again on the rise and we, and now we're bringing something up from the past. Is it because you believe we need closure? Do you believe that, that it, it is necessary? for us to continue with these investigations into these atrocities? I'll put it this way. The the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was an immense project. There's this unfortunate revisionist uh, perspective uh, emanating from a lot of youth at this, at this time that it was somehow just some cheap and nasty sellout deal. Um, if anybody bothered to to read through the incredibly extensive uh, seven volumes of reports that the TRC put out, you would see how much work they'd and heavy lifting they'd done in, into shining a light on the darker recesses of our past. Um, and yet the TRC um, was unaware of the activities of this unit, and in particular the death flights were unknown at that time. Um, we are living in an era, as you rightly say, in which there is a rising disgruntlement around the transitional settlement. Um, however, I believe that a lot of this is, is on the one hand because we've been unable to adequately secure closure because we don't, in fact, know everything that, that occurred. And on the other hand, because... The statutory recommendations emanating from the TRC Amnesty Committee that prosecutions proceed in, uh, in originally 300 cases have not in fact been fulfilled. So it's, uh, it's a bit of a balancing act. On the, you know, on the one hand, we can't, uh, we can't move forward until we know what in fact did happen. The TRC did a lot of work towards that. But as my book will demonstrate, uh, it really didn't know the full picture. And on the other hand, uh, there needs to be a way to consolidate all of that 
and 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 round it off in a way that is satisfactory to to all citizens that that recognizes the pain inflicted on all sides. Michael, uh, I must say I agree with you completely, and I was, I was playing a bit of a devil's advocate by asking you that loaded question. The fact remains is that there are a lot of unanswered questions for a lot of people. The Victim Identification Unit from the South African Police Services still works very closely with the National Prosecuting Authority that have a specific unit that looks for for bodies of uh, victims of the apartheid security forces to try identify them and give closure to those families. And there's many families that haven't received closure in South Africa. And it's part of the culture of our fellow South Africans that that closure somehow be realized. And when one looks at this book that you've written, it's, it's a stark reminder of what's going on. I had the misfortune this weekend, um, in the midst of the, the Madiba celebrations to read a post about Mandela's bombings, 1981 to 1989. And I responded to this person on social media, which I shouldn't have done. It was, it was obviously a bait to say, look, the man had been imprisoned. He was not the leader of, of the liberation movement at that time. I don't know why you're calling these Mandela's bombs and why you're not also talking about the atrocities that occurred on the other side. And the guest on our show a couple of weeks ago was Candace Mama, a wonderful young lady, an incredible person, in fact, whose father was was murdered and burnt to death when she was just one years of age by Eugene de Kock. So I don't think white South Africans have actually wrapped their minds around the atrocities that were committed by the apartheid security forces. And that takes me to my next question. What made mm-hmm. you write on this specific subject? Well, look, uh, what is quite curious to me is that, you know, I, I covered parts of the, the, the trial against our chemical and biological warfare chief, uh, Brigadier Vota Basson, um, head of Project Coast. This was now 20 years ago. And this was at the first time that these allegations about death flights emerged into, into the light of public scrutiny. Um, but what was quite interesting is that because the um, the judge basically quashed all six extraterritorial charges against Basson on the grounds that he supposedly did not have jurisdiction because that occurred outside of the country. Um, most of these death flights took place off the coast of Southwest Africa, as it was then, uh, for example. Um, most people just didn't really get their teeth into it. And it, it struck me sort of 18-plus years later, as absolutely astounding that we had had this glimpse of hundreds of people, hundreds of uh, detainees being murdered and dumped in the ocean from a light aircraft, a la the Argentine hunters practice, um, and nobody had really followed up on it. Um, of course, Basson was acquitted on all charges, um, which no doubt also put a damper on that. Um, but it, it was just one thing that was clearly very intriguing. And because I, I really enjoy comparative analysis, I was fascinated about the, the possible doctrinal origins of this. You know, where did, where did the SADF come up with this idea? Were they chatting to their pals in Argentina? Um, were there other influences? So that's basically where it originated as in, in, in fact, a doctrinal study which sounds very technical for, for something so ghoulish. Um, but, of course, it also haunted me that you had 
well, several hundred families uh, out there who had absolutely no idea what had happened to their sons, and in one case, daughter. Military expert and author Jackie Saliers called your book gripping and important and went on to say it's very well researched. And this, to me, is fascinating because how were you able to research a book so thoroughly considering that tons upon tons upon tons of documents were destroyed and so many people that were implicated in these atrocities refused to speak out? Yeah, the, the, this book was actually quite a curious one to, to work on because I went about it in a completely different way to, in, to which I've written my other five books. Um, essentially, um, there was, of course, the, uh, the transcript of the Basson trial. That was, that was my first starting point. Um, and then basically taking a look at all of the, the personalities who testified, including those who testified on conditions of anonymity. They've been granted anonymity um, by the court, which included, in fact, the, the founding officer commander of the unit, um, who was, in fact, in court called Mr. K. Um, but he was, a, in fact, a co-founder of the Salute Scouts back in 1974. So, so basically started tracking all these, all these individuals back Building up a backstory, where did these people come from, what were their origins, um, who was connected to what, and starting to piece together the the the, the origin of the unit, um, and starting to identify people who had never been publicly identified. A lot of this was based on um, research through uh, many other books related to South African special forces and the Salu Scouts. A lot of it was really sort of connecting the dots. It was quite a bit of sleuthing work to figure out, oh, this chap who's who's very well known perhaps in reconnaissance circles and whose name has never been connected with Delta 40 um, was in fact uh, a, a founding member. Um, I then proceeded to uh, work on things such as the actual existing uh, pilot's logbooks the pilots who'd, uh, who'd run the death flights uh, did, did a reconstruction to the best of my ability of, uh, of, the, of the death flights. I had to obviously the, all of the airport codes or airfield codes in uh, southwest Africa when it was essentially a de facto South African colony have since changed, changed since independence to Namibia. The, the research that you, you did into this and how you you came to to write this story. So I think what my, my, my listeners and I are dying to know is, did you ever get to meet any of the people involved in these atrocities? Absolutely. I mean, this is this was important, critically important, uh, particularly for any investigative journalist. You want to be able to to sit down and meet face to face with the the key personalities. Of, of your investigation. Now, what is what is interesting in the background is that all of these guys had extremely strict instructions from the highest levels, but particularly from the general officer commanding special forces, because this was a, a special forces operation, the Rekis, as as we know them. Um, that these operations are, were never to be spoken about ever in any way, shape, or form. Um, Two of the military intelligence uh, veterans who assisted me uh, in this uh, in my quest and who are in fact specialists 
in uh, uh, in in the sort of history of the Reiki, particularly for for collectors, they were given free reign to to trawl through the Reiki's archives and all this. But they themselves were also told, under no circumstances do we talk about this unit um, or its uh, its origins or anything associated with uh, with it. Um, so that these men who are now in their 70s uh, were forthcoming enough to sit down with me and be remarkably uh, hospitable. And I can verify, because of my background research, honest with me about their involvement in these, uh, in these ultra-secret missions was quite remarkable. But definitely their voices needed to be in the text. The gentlemen that were involved in this particular um, unit and and what their reactions were. My question yeah, what to I, you what I was, is, um, what I was uh, going to say was that um, the the unit was comprised in its early days of a, a series of uh, very um, knowledgeable hand picked specialists from a variety of different fields. So one guy, for instance, was a, an Australian mercenary who was a specialist in communist bloc weapons. Another guy was a former um, Portuguese secret policeman who'd operated in Angola, who was an explosives expert, etc. This combined a whole bunch of very disparate personalities. So their responses, you know, 30 years later to what they had been required to do back then are as differentiated. Um, it, you know, it ranges from people who are clearly riven with regret to others who are, were, were exceptionally proud of their work and remain exceptionally proud of their work to this day. Um, some basing it on a very techno, technocratic kind of perspective that, you know, they were, they were fighting a war and that they were specialist soldiers engaged in, in, in combating what they saw as a terrorist enemy. Um, uh, to, to others who were maybe a little bit more uh, gleeful about their um, extinguishing of the lives of what they saw as communist subversives. So, yeah, a, a very differentiated range, very much depending on the, on, on, on the personalities involved. And there were some very uh, powerful personalities. And what about the controversy regarding the book? Was there anybody that tried to prevent you from from proceeding further once you were out there asking questions? Because word spreads like wildfire in these close-knit communities. Um, yeah, it does indeed. I actually got a call from a guy who sold my house um, many years ago. Turned out he was a recce, which I hadn't known, and he was aware that there was uh, a book in the offing and that, that, that I'd been asking around. Um uh, essentially, I had I had two completely different responses. The, the one was absolute dead silence, uh, um, complete cold shoulder, um, and the other was sure, come over, let's have a beer and let's talk about it. Um, so uh, I I when I very first started looking at this twenty years ago, um, I did receive a death threat, but that you know that has been the sole death threat, and that was twenty years ago when this subject was a lot more. Uh, lively, a lot more dangerous to investigate because all of these guys were at the heights of their, of their careers. Now a lot of them are dead. A lot of them uh, are retired. The remainder are retired. Um, and 
Yeah, so I, I haven't had any any resistance yet, but but don't forget, of course, the book's not out yet. Uh, we'll see what happens when the book actually hits the shelves, which will be end of end of the month, um, because there are revelations in there that are definitely going to be unsettling for some parties. What have you taken away personally from this experience? Follow your follow your gut instincts, absolutely. Um, be crystal clear, honest, including with the guys that you you know you may not agree with. Um, never run away from the you know the people who are presumed to be the bad guys or whatever. I mean, speak to them; they are at the heart of the matter. I always find young journalists who. Uh, tiptoe around the accused in court. And I said, well, speak to the guy. I mean, he's the reason the court is convened in the per- first place. Speak to the accused, you know. I mean, innocent until proven guilty for one thing. But, you know, speak to the accused. They're human beings. They they are deserving of justice just as anybody else is. And that's the reason that they are there. That's the reason we're paying for them to be there. So speak to them. And, and, and don't go in with a a high-handed attitude, go in, you know, go in playing open cards, being honest. Um, but, yeah, f- follow your instincts about what needs to be needs to be said and needs to be told as, as a storyteller. Michael, why are these books about the, 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 the COVID war during the apartheid years so important? They're important because, precisely because it was COVID. So we didn't know a lot about this. Obviously, there, there have been a, a, a ream of books that have been produced uh, over the last 20 years on these topics. Um, uh, Rhodesia, the late Rhodesia war specialist uh, Peter Stiff was, of course, amongst the most prolific, but there were many others as well. Um, uh, unfortunately, I think one of the problems is, is that our history is very um, tilted towards people who came from the statutory forces, uh, people who came from the Sulu Scouts or from the Rikis. Um, there aren't really that many adequate military histories of their opponents. Um, and I, I, I just think that it's very hard to progress as a, as a culture trying to knit itself together, trying to forge a way forward collectively to do so if we still have all sorts of gray areas and doubts and skeletons in the cupboard and lingering suspicions and etc. Um, much better to, to make a clean breast of it and air that dirty laundry. Tell me, um, in, in, the, in the midst of COVID, uh, it must be very difficult launching a book, having that communication, that one-on-one with your readers. Um, how is the book going to be launched? When is the book going to be launched? We know it's on bookshelves towards the end of this month, but uh, and available by, by pre-order. But is there going to be any any kind of um, online series or, or or any way that the people can can participate in a discussion with you? Absolutely. Um, the, the launch uh, is scheduled uh, as a webinar for the third of August. But I, I will only release details once they have been finalized by my publicist. Um, so that is still being finalized yet. So I, even I don't know who my discussant will be at this point. Um, but we're obviously hoping for somebody who's, who's really strong and knows how to navigate what is a, it is a very complex field. I mean, this, this book literally has hundreds of characters in it. Um, 
uh, many of whom have sort of never been named before in, in connection with the, uh, the, the operations that, I, that I'm detailing. So it, it, it's immensely complex. It's legally complex. So we, we're just trying to make sure we have the right discussion. But uh, there will be that, that opportunity to engage with me and you know, actually ask me questions. And I'm hoping to do several others as well rolling forward into the year so that there will be many occasions in which the general public and military veterans and others can, uh, can pitch questions to me and, and ask about the text. Death Flight is going to be available at all good bookstores at the end of July, beginning of August. And as you heard from the author, Michael Schmidt, there will be a virtual book launch on the 3rd of August, details of which we will be posting on all of our social media. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. That's welcome. Thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure chatting to you, and I hope we can get you back into studio when the new normal resumes, whatever that is going to be, and we can have a proper discussion without the technical glitches. So to you and uh, our listeners today, I do apologize for the technical glitches. We have been working remotely from two weeks before lockdown actually occurred. So um, we're many, many months into into this um, remote working system uh, with our crew at, at, at the office, at the studio, but who we thank, of course, for all their hard work. But, of course, there are still going to be glitches. Michael, good luck. What are you working on next? Um, something completely different. Uh, I'm looking at a, uh, a real uh, part of my own family's history uh, which is this completely disastrous failed colonial experiment that Belgium conducted in Guatemala in the mid 19th century um, under the uh, under the aegis of Leopold I, who was father to the the ne'er do well of uh, Belgian Congo infamy. Um, so th- this was this was the young state of Belgium's first attempt at a colony, in, uh, in and it happened to be in Central America, and this is the origin of uh, of some of my family line, and it was a complete disaster, a, a Keystone Cops comedy of errors from from top to to bottom, and I just thought in this area or this era of sort of really serious um, debate around decolonization. It would make for a really fun um, and engaging and hopefully uh, uplifting uh, way to, to to tell the story and to engage with what is otherwise quite a serious topic. Sounds absolutely fascinating. Something to look forward to once we've all got through the horrific book, um, Death Flight, that really, really details some some really, really, really nefarious activities. Michael Schmidt, author of Death Flight available in all good bookstores. We'll be back same time, same place next week, right here on 101.9 FM. And if you enjoyed today's show, there will be a podcast uploaded on the High FM website, and we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page, Confidential Brief Radio Show. Thank you so much for joining in today.